The RPG Caves Mana is fueled by patrons over at patreon.com slash Yumi Capri. And I want to say thanks to each and every one of our Patreon supporters for all of your support throughout the years, as well as supporting our independent content. And let's start with, I think, our premium producers, Dallas Ford, Lee Navarro, the fearless leader of the Phoenix Overdrive Extra Life team, and Jonathan Brown. You can find his content over at youtube.com slash PM Entertainment. Our platinum producers, Robbie Bobby Miller and Trucker Sloth. And our gold members, Argo, Brendan Myers, Dallas Robbins, Emily O'Kelly, Heather Boney, James Johnson, Joel Brooks, Jose Jimenez, Mac Time, Benji Kong, Marcus O'Neill, RJ Kern, Dano, Skinny Matt, Mr. and Mrs. Nasty Boots, Foolish Fuji, and Xavier Reyes. Thank you all for all of your support. Now, let's clear these dungeons of some mobs. Fellow travelers, welcome to the 13th level of the RPG Cave. I'm one of your hosts, the level 989 human archmage, Ryan Turford, and I'm joined, as always, by the level 99 elf ranger, Mr. Garrett Bland. Garrett, how are you doing on this lovely, lovely Saturday that hasn't been full of problems or anything like that? No, no, not at all. I've been having an okay morning and a chill morning at that. I, I watched the latest episode of Ted Lasso and just, just chilling, you know? But over on your end, you got some some technical <laughs> difficulties going on, and I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I know, between the fact that you currently can't see me to the point that where this may not have been the first time we've recorded this intro to a whole bunch yeah. of stuff. I mean, that's what happens when you buy a new computer, because I just bought a new computer that's true. this week. It's very fancy, but uh, it does not uh, currently want to work. So we're, we're currently on our old school setup, and not even everything there is working. But that's enough behind <laughs> the curtain. Let's clear the dungeon of some pesky mobs. Of course. If you like what we do and you want to support the show, of course, there's a number of ways you can do that. Number one, you can support us on your podcast service of choice. Um, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, but as well, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. We're on all the things. Uh, also, if you want to see our beautiful faces this week, I laugh a little bit because you didn't see my face <laughs> last week. Uh, go back and watch the Final Fantasy VII episode if you want to see why, why my face wasn't there. Of course, though, mm. YouTube.com slash Capri is how you go about doing that. Um, you can like, subscribe, share with all your friends, all the stuff that, again, YouTubers tell you to do when you go to YouTube. Last but not least, of course, if you want early access to this show as well as exclusive content, you're going to head on over to patreon.com slash Yumi Capri. Um, we have early access to all of our shows. Well, it's a little bit early. It's about a day early, as well as uh, mm-hmm. exclusive shows like the Pants Patreon podcast for patrons podcast, as well as the uh, the Yumi Capri show. So there you go. Those are all the things that people can do to support us. But Garrett, let us ta- let us read from the secret text and. We're definitely reading from the sacred text this week. We're going old definitely. school this week. I'm, I'm ready to give both the listeners and Garrett a history You're going to give me a lecture, man. It's <laughs> fine. I, I, I prepared a, 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 a presentation slideshow using, you know. Really? No, hmm? please. I didn't go Professor Turford going on over here. No, I'm not going that far. But of course, um, I wanted to talk about something kind of near and dear to my heart. Um, and that's mm-hmm. working design. So um, we had actually talked about the idea of doing like 
an episode devoted to a specific company kind of out of air when we're kind of like coming up with ideas for um, what companies maybe you want to talk about. And I mean, we could have mm-hmm. done for the very first episode like this, we could have done some of the obvious ones, you know, like Square Enix or um, mm-hmm. any other, you know, major RPG company. But the reason I actually wanted us to do working designs is because this actually kind of brings us back to kind of the origins of Japanese localization in North America. I mean, first of all, yeah. working designs weren't the very first company to actually do, you know, North American localization of Japanese video games. Um, but they were really the first to really have like their brand kind of be associated as like the stamp of quality for Japanese releases coming to North America. I mean, for the most part, if you played older NES RPGs or even a lot of Super Nintendo and Genesis RPGs, a lot of them are full of, like, translation issues or... Right. um, You could definitely tell either they rushed through it or they basically took, like, the literal interpretation of what the Japanese text said and just pasted it as is, which, of course, if anyone knows anything about the Japanese language, it doesn't work that way. Like, you can't do just a one-to-one... Uh, comparison between that and English because they don't line up correctly. They're very, they're not just different. Uh, they don't just use different letters and arrangements of, of letters, but also the sentence structure is like completely different from, you know, North American English uh, sentence structure. So um, it really kind of forced developers to really um, thinking about um, how to basically bring these products to North America and basically working designs mm-hmm. was at the kind of the forefront of this. So of course, as we always do, we're going to go to quick facts, although these are going to be a little more wordy and lengthy than usual quick facts. Because, I mean, for the most part, we're doing a company. Anytime we're doing a company, for the most part, I expect we're going to probably have a long list of facts to kind of go along with right. that. So, yeah. first off, Working Designs has released over 30 games during its lifetime, which is pretty impressive okay. because they um, actually closed down in 2005, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, so... I mean, between 1993 and 2006, they released 30 games, which is pretty okay. impressive. So that's that's a that's games. more than one game a year for sure. Or yeah. maybe like a couple games. Yeah, for sure. And it wasn't just yeah. uh, publishing that they did. Again, you have to remember, they also did all the localization for these games, um, recording vocals and stuff like that, too. So it's actually a lot more work than just wow. slapping their name on it and then making sure to, it goes to distributors like some publishers end up doing. Um, the, mm-hmm. the studio itself was originally formed, though, in 1986 by Todd, Todd Mark and venture capitalist Sylvia Schmidt with the intent on making accounting software for IBM PCs. And they're, they're really? stationed in Redding, California, um, which is just, it's funny to think about because they, they had no intention of actually making games. But what happened was in 1988, Todd Mark, who was actually the head of the company, um, passed away. And it actually, mm. the, the company basically fell to lead programmer, Victor Ireland, to basically, basically take the reins as kind of the company lead and kind of take over uh, the direction for working designs. And I mean, for the most part, they had some contracts they had to fill of like basically mm-hmm. um, fulfilling a, a lot of uh, promises for a lot of accounting software that they had already kind of promised to uh, different companies. Um, but in 1990, they were finally able to kind of shift focus and go from there. And Victor Ireland had like a huge passion for games. Like he really wanted to make games. Apparently that was the reason he got into programming was he wanted to make games. Um, So when he finally got the chance to, you know, choose what direction the company went in, they decided to actually go down the game route. So, um, but they were going to continue to work on publishing games rather than making games themselves Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Smart. (laughs) However, 
what they started to realize was uh, when they were starting to look for, you know, publishers to work with, um, most of mm-hmm. them had either went through Sega or Nintendo directly, um, or for the most part, they self-published. Um, so for the most part, they, it was really hard for me them to kind of find developers until they were approached by Taito in June 1991 to kind of sign their very first publishing deal for multiple Taito games, including Parasol Stars and Kadash, which were both uh, PC Engine games in Japan, but actually w- became TurboGrafx-16 games. Um, and they okay. basically became the fourth, third-party publisher for the TurboGrafx-16 in North America, which is just crazy to think about. Like, they were one of the first kind of companies on board outside mm-hmm. outside of uh, Konami to work on TurboGrafx games in North America, which, of course, for folks that don't remember TurboGrafx-16, of course, it was a uh, Konami-published console that just in the West did not get a lot of traction. They had games on mm. uh, on Hue cards, which kind of look like, you know, debit or credit cards today. Um, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> which is really interesting. Um, and if you want to collect TurboGrafx-16 games right now, like, they're stupidly expensive. Like, it's such mm. a rare console, especially for, like, the North American releases of games. It's just, like, some of them, are, like, the, the some of the cheaper ones are, like, 5,000 bucks, not 5,000, 500 bucks. For, for a game, Still. <laughs> just for a cartridge only. So they can be they can be pretty expensive. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that was kind of starting to happen around this time was companies were finally starting to learn about kind of CD-ROM technology because this was something that, um, for the most part, was very new to both gaming and PCs at the time because for the mo- uh, um, it didn't really kind of become prominent until like 1995 at the earliest. So. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, in 1992, Working Designs actually created their own studio to design specifically to re-record audio for CD-ROM games, and they became the very first third-party publisher of CD-ROM titles in North America for consoles, period. Like, there was no one else doing CD-ROM games in North America at the time um, besides Sega. That was really the only other company, and as well as... Mm. uh, Konami with TurboGrafx, because TurboGrafx did eventually get a CD add-on um, that mm-hmm. allowed you to play CD games as well. That's where we got games like um, Castlevania Rondo of Blood, for example, or Symphony of the Night. That's where those game, where the games really came from. So it was really like a big emerging thing, and, and it, they, they kind of kicked off the craze of CD stuff. Um, with the cool. move to CD, Working Designs becomes an official Sega CD publisher in 1993, and they officially started publishing for Sega Saturn in 1994, which was around when that console was coming out. Um, And again, they were one of the very first kind of publisher of Japanese games on Mm -hmm. Sega Saturn and Sega CD, which is kind of crazy too. And then in 1995, Working Designs officially became a PlayStation third-party publisher, but it would take a while before we would see a release on the PlayStation, as PlayStation, for folks that don't remember or or didn't know, um, I actually just learned this while doing the research for this, um, PlayStation was very slow to adopt RPGs for their platform because they didn't didn't want RPGs for some reason. It didn't, it, it, it actually like, it took till basically the end of 1996 for us to finally see RPGs on the PlayStation, which is just funny to think about because if you look back on the PlayStation 1 library, just so much of that library that, that people remember of it are RPGs. So it's, just, mm-hmm. it's, it's funny to think that Sony just didn't want you know, RPGs on their consoles. So they made uh, tons of games for PlayStation 1 as well as PlayStation 2, um, and they basically closed their doors on December 12th 
2005 after running into a bunch of financial complications that were related to mm. issues acquiring approval for some of their unannounced PS2 titles. So they were working on localizing a bunch of PS2 titles, but unfortunately they just couldn't get the there were some stags in some of the approvals for some of them. So they never ended up getting released and they basically just ran out of money. So they actually ended up closing their doors then. However, working designs actually continue to live on beyond that point. So um, Victor Ireland, uh, after the company kind of shuttered, he actually was able to fa- found a new company in July, 2006, oh, wow. which was only like six months later, essentially um, called mm-hmm. Gaijin works. And they actually continued to do the localizing thing that Working Designs was kind of known for as well. So they actually ha- were in talks to basically localize and publish JRPGs on the Xbox 360. But for whatever reason, the the deal never actually came to fruition. Because originally, if you remember the 360 launch, there was a big push from Microsoft yes. to have RPGs from Japan on the console because that was one of the things they were heavily criticized for with the original Xbox. And unfortunately that fell through because when this deal was kind of coming about, that was when Microsoft was starting to get out of that focus because that was after, mm-hmm. you know, blue dragon and lost odyssey had come out. Um, and they yeah. weren't seeing huge returns from them. So they ended up moving away from, you know, that kind of big push, especially because they couldn't move the 360 in Japan, even if they wanted to give it away for three for free. At oh, that's point. very true. So, <laughs> so Wow. Ga- Gaijin Works ended up publishing games on Nintendo 3DS and WiiWare, as well as they handled a lot of the PS1 uh, PSN ports for PS3 from a bunch of mm. Working Designs titles as well as some other titles as well. And their final game to date was 2017's Summon Night 6 Lost Borders on PlayStation 4 and Vita. So that was the last game that they put out. They're not tech. They haven't technically announced they're closed, but they haven't released anything in four years or announced anything or tweeted anything in four years. So, wow, it's been a long time. So some notable releases, of course, before we kind of get into kind of the discussion about working designs. Um, some of their notable releases include uh, both Lunar, the Silver Star and Eternal Blue, which will get their own episode later on. Uh, I'll talk about those more in depth on a later episode. Uh, Pop Full Mail, which was on Sega CD, as well as Vey. The Art the Lad series, which was on PlayStation 1, as well as Elemental Gearbolt. Magic Knight Rayarth, which was based off an anime, but was a really fantastic Sega, uh, Sega Saturn game. Like, that was probably one of the Saturn's best games. As well as mm-hmm. Shining Wisdom, which was the last Shining Force game before Camelot uh, officially moved over to working with just Nintendo. Uh, oh, okay. Which is kind of crazy. Because, cool. um, yeah, the Shining Force series was originally developed by Cap Camelot before Nintendo basically purchased them. So that's kind of all of my quick facts that I kind of had here. So... What makes working design so important and, and why do I think that they are really an important cog to kind of the wheel that turns that is, you know, JRPGs. So first off, as I kind of alluded to, because they were the first people kind of working with CD technology, that also meant that uh, a lot of CDs uh, games were really starting to um, go through and, and do voiceovers because we didn't really have voices in video games. And that was really something you had to think about until mm-hmm. the CD era essentially happened where you had live, uh, live action video games, you know, like stuff like night trap where it's just, you're basically watching an interactive movie. Um, but also you've got, you had like JRPGs that basically had voiceovers with some of the characters while you played it, as well as, mm-hmm. you know, in-game cutscenes that eventually led to some of the bigger cutscenes that we see in games like, you know, final fantasy seven, that we talked about last week. Like that was kind of the thing that kind of inspired that type of thing that happened was kind of this early CD era. So 
especially around this time too, because we really didn't have a lot of Japanese voiceover work that was done here in North America, um, because this was before anime really became a huge popular thing here in North America. Um, like we, like some of the earlier mm-hmm. animation anime dub studios were like manga entertainment or the ocean group um and uh, out of canada and they had those didn't really come into prominence until like the late 90s so the the this company was kind of very much ahead of its time because it essentially worked like almost like an anime uh dubbing studio kind of works out like almost like something like funimation but instead of doing anime they did the same thing that kind of funimation does for anime but for games so this was actually like a really important step for uh, a company in North America to really take to show kind of the model for how localization should be handled in North America, um, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, uh, the, kind of the processing quality people really expect from that. Because, again, as I mentioned before, like if you go play a game like Ghost Lion, which is an RPG on the NES, like there's all kinds of crazy spelling errors in it. And like the story doesn't make any sense. And it's just weird and goofy. Uh, so it's just it, it was it's really interesting to kind of look at it, how much of an impact they really had on on the industry, um, especially, too, because, as I mentioned, they were kind of known for like the badge of quality because um, all their voice work. If you go listen to it now, it's a bit silly and kind of campy, um, just like if you go back and watch like a 90 a late 90s dubbed anime, for example, there's a little bit of quirkiness to it, too. Like if you go go rewatch like the dub of like Neon Genesis Evangelion or cowboy bebop or something like that you know they oh i love cowboy bebop (laughs) me too but like even besides the main characters in cowboy bebop like some of the off characters like they sound some of them sound off and weird especially if you go watch it oh yeah yeah if you watch the dub so um it's so we saw a lot of that from games so i think that they really showed quality there not only that but they did they also revolutionized something that i know one donnie reese would probably actually appreciate they were the very first company to introduce collector's editions for games because really uh, okay. at least for consoles because PCs had kind of done that mm-hmm. in the PC space. Um, and, but we had never really seen a North American publisher do collector's editions for games at all. So um, the very first one that actually came out was lunar, the silver star complete, which was on PlayStation one um, that I alluded to a little bit earlier, where it basically came with mm-hmm. the game on multiple discs, but then it also came with a making of CD video. Um, so you put the CD into your PlayStation and it plays like a CD video, which was like an old format in Japan. Um, it looks it interesting. Looks, it looks terrible today. Like it's like worse than VHS <laughs> quality, bet. but it exists um, as well as a soundtrack, um, an art book, as well as like a cloth map. Um, and instead of it being like a separate purchase, it was the default skew for the game, essentially. So wow. it was actually almost it was actually harder to find um, the version that released later. That was just the, the, the base game without the extra stuff than it is to actually find the collector's edition nowadays, which is interesting, which is just hilarious to think about uh, when you kind mm-hmm. of look back on it. And they, they did that for all their games. Not only that, but even some of their early releases on Sega CD, they would throw in a bunch of different stuff where they would have like really like intricate and, and well done uh, manuals with lots of great like illustrations of all the characters and stuff like that. So um, from everything from the packaging to um, the, the, the design to the English translation, like everything about their games, just like, felt quality like you could definitely feel you know how impressive it was so anytime Mm -hmm. you saw the little working designs label on like a package you knew this is a game i should be paying attention to at the time 
Okay. And they were actually well, awesome. And they were actually pretty much able to kind of, you know, maintain that throughout, throughout their entire lifetime. So um, that's why I thought they were really interesting to publish, talk about, because I think their legacy can really be felt today with, you know, all the different localizations we've, we've seen of games since then, because it, it really um, changed uh, a lot of companies in the industry to, and made them kind of pay attention to this. Like that's the reason why, for example, Final Fantasy VII, um, mm-hmm. for example, was as had as good of a localization as it ended up being, even though there's still some weirdness to it. For the most part, you know, companies like Square Enix um, and, and Nintendo really started paying attention. To this. There's there like working designs in a way is like kind of the reason there's a localization department at Nintendo that really handleizes mm-hmm. handles all this stuff because essentially localization for for those that don't know it's not just about like re-recording the words it's also ba- basically like rewriting all of the dialogue in the game especially in an yeah. RPG which you know heavy on dialogue for the most part and then you know putting it all back together in a way that kind of actually makes sense to North American ears um, which takes a lot of work. It's not an easy process. It's part of the reason why, like, if a game gets heavily localization like this, like, Working Designs games, for example, would come out, like, sometimes, like, two years after the Japanese release of the games because it would take so long for them to do the process between re-recording all the vocals for the game um, and then rewriting the story and then putting it all into the game itself, as well as sometimes adding some exclusive features to some of the North American versions of the game. Like, I know Lunar, um, that I just talked about on PlayStation 1, they added... North American specific features like um, the ability to use like the DualShock controller, for example, um, or some other uh, smaller features like that. So they would throw in a lot of extra features in some of their games um, to to help kind of give the North American kind of like a market like some preferential treatment, I guess, which was really interesting. So, yeah, I think I think that their legacy is kind of long felt kind of over the over the course of the years with RPGs and. They're probably the people to thank for, you know, companies like NIS America, who I think Mm -hmm. is is really good, does a really good job with localization nowadays, um, as well as, again, the the first party companies um, or even the main RPG makers like Square Enix kind of taking localization very seriously and, you know, bringing games together. But I'm going to quickly sick by water, Garrett. Um, But do do you have any questions about working designs or, or what do you think about this giant diatribe that I've kind of gone on about? You just taught me, or just filled a gap in gaming history. I had no idea about. Like, I mean, you were three I'm, at the time, so I mean, you're I, very I, young. I, very true, but like they they worked throughout, you know, uh, when I was alive. And I I'm looking at the games that they published and everything, and of course, I I didn't touch any of these games. So yeah, I probably would never hear of this company. But it's really cool to see how this. This company started that concept of localization, especially with Japanese games. Um, And I guess, you know, now they're not as relevant just because all the first party uh, companies are like, oh, this is the set example and model. We'll just do it in-house. We'll do it in-source. And as you said, it it takes a lot of work to do this localization. And I, I really do appreciate all the first party games, especially RPGs that do voice acting do this do the like the dialogue transfer over and like it's actually so surprising now that the gap between the release of japanese games and english games are so close together than they've ever been before Mm -hmm. um so yeah i 
thank you, Working Designs, very much. I'm sorry I didn't know about you <laughs> at all. Um, well, it also helped, too, that they really published, like, a lot of the games they published also were just classic, really solid top-tier titles that had that just it. weren't, that were kind of, like, published from smaller Japanese companies, like, games that, that you wouldn't think about. Like, for example, Game Arts, um, who did the Grandia series. Like, they published, like, yeah. Lunar, the series came from them. Um, you've also got uh, just a mm. lot of other smaller studios that they... That was kind of their big focus, which, again, they remind me so much of NIS America when you actually do kind of the comparisons or a company like Xseed, um, which is another one that is kind of like this, too, because Xseed does like the ease mm-hmm. games as well as um, some other RPG localization nowadays, too. That's true. That's true. Uh, so I don't know how they transitioned from being a county s- software company yeah. to being a publisher. Is that like... I'm just trying to wrap in my head, like, you know, the concept and the talents of being just doing software development for accounting and then, okay, no, let's just do localization of Japanese games. They must have had a hard pivot back in the early 90s to do that. What it really came down to, the reason they went to kind of localizing Japanese games, what it was, it was simply like. Those were the contracts that they had available to them. So they were kind of forced mm. in that position. It, it wasn't that they had like a big kind of love. I mean, I, I, I think from what I've kind of read about um, the, the, the founder anyways, or um, sorry, Victor Ireland in particular, I think he had mm-hmm. a passion for Japanese games, but he didn't really he wasn't like out to basically try and fix this problem. It just so happened like the, the, the companies that really needed a publisher mm-hmm. in North America were the ones that came from Japan, like smaller companies from Japan, like Taito um, or, you know, yeah. game arts that needed someone to kind of give them that extra push so people would be able to see their games. Um, and I, th- wow. I think that's where that really came from. It's not so much that they, it's not so much that they were trying to do that, but it's just it's something they fell into, but it's something that they excelled at. Like, but yeah, it's such, cool. a, it's such a crazy story when you think about it, too, because to your point, like it's so weird to go from accounting company uh, to that. But it, it kind of reminds me of the story of Bioware, too, where like Bioware was oh, like, yeah. designed to like set up specifically to do like medical software. <laughs> and because like the two founders were weird thing. <laughs> and then they somehow ended up doing like Western RPGs and ended up being one of the best, you know, Western RPG studios out there. We'll talk about Bioware on another show, but I think I, I think that it's, so like, it's interesting in the kind of the same sort of way, too, where it's like it's such a weird story. But, uh, yeah, I just um, I loved working designs games. It's a big per- like it's a big reason why, like when I look back on some of my older consoles, one of the ones that I look mm-hmm. most fondly on is the Sega CD, which I know really surprises people because when most people think Sega CD games, they don't think about RPGs. They think about Night Trap and, you know, uh, yeah. Ground Zero Texas and Mad Dog Mug McCree and like all these really dumb, like full motion video games. But yeah, Sega CD was like the first console that I had that was like CD based with voices and full cutscenes and stuff like that. Like it was, it was a really interesting time to be into games and, um, I, I still think a lot of those games still really hold up today. They're still really fun. Um, the, the, of course, they're st- most of the games they publish were, are still like you know really beautiful to play today. The voiceover work, even though it still has its problems, um, it's still pretty dang cool to actually be able to play a game like that and have voices and they, they sound pretty good. Um, so yeah, I think that it was it was a really special time for me to really be getting into games. And, and again, this is going back to our very first episode where I talked about how I got into RPGs. I mean, it's thanks mm-hmm. to, you know, Working Designs bringing over, you know, the Lunar series in particular that really, you know, formed me into an, a, an RPG gamer. Like 
it's thanks to them mm-hmm. that I'm even in RPGs, even talk to you on, on this podcast about RPGs right now. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I thought that was really cool um, to talk about as well. And, and plus, they don't get enough credit, too, for some of the Sega Saturn stuff they get, they did, too, because Sega Saturn support in North America in particular was just was really awful. Like, Sega Saturn oh, really? had some really good games, but the problem was mm-hmm. nine times out of ten, they would choose not to release the games in North America because um, mm. Sega didn't want to publish it here. Like, they didn't want to go through the effort of, you know, porting it to, to North America. And then Working Designs took on some of the, the better RPG titles, um, and they had a lot mm-hmm. of really good re- releases on the Saturn. Um, and we got some other good good gems on the Saturn outside of that. Um, but for the most part, most people uh, who collect Saturn nowadays know, like, you pretty much just got to buy Japanese imports of all the games now because, you know, yeah. that's the only way you can play them. And half the time, you can't read them anyways. Like Police Knots, for example, which is a really fantastic, yeah. you know, anime-ass mm-hmm. game about, like, uh, like robot like mech police officers in the future um but it just it, it's very story heaven you can't the, no one ever ended up doing the localization for it so yeah there you go so that's everything i wanted to talk about with working designs i think they were again like a really important part of the rpg you know lineage and i think they, this was kind of a good way to kind of start off our, our kind of discussions about you know other rpg studios um, mm-hmm. even though this one was a little bit shorter cause I know Gar- this is, uh, uh, there, there, this is more of a history lesson for you, but at the same time, I know, Definitely. um, in the future, we're going to talk more in depth about some other companies. So, um, looking yeah. for more of those in the future, but so, sounds good. Hold on. I have just a, a couple of questions for you. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking down the list. I have a, a, a bunch of ROMs just, just in my retro pocket. And I see some of these games. I've, I've loaded it with a lot of Sega Saturn, Sega CD games. Uh, other than, what is it, Lunar mm-hmm. uh, games that you mentioned, what, what other um, standout games from this list I should pay attention to? So I, I kind of brought these up in kind of the notable releases section, but I would say yeah. um, Popful Mail in particular is actually a really good oh, okay. side-scrolling action RPG. It kind of reminded me of like a side-scrolling platforming version of Zelda in a lot of ways, um, but it has, oh, okay. but it's like a very like cartoonishy game, um, very comical game where it's, it doesn't take itself seriously. In fact, uh, Garrett, I know you like anime. Have you ever heard of the, the show, uh, the Slayers at all? No, I haven't actually. Okay. No. So the Slayers is like this, like comedic fantasy, uh, anime. Um, and it came out in like the mm-hmm. late nineties. It's on Funimation, uh, in case anyone actually wants to go watch it. Um, really good show. Um, but that, the tone of that show is really what, you know, Popful Mail actually really reminded me of. Um, so, mm-hmm. so that's what I wanted to bring up. Plus, it was originally a Super Nintendo game, but the Sega CD version, they added a whole bunch of cutscenes and stuff like that. So um, cool. that's what I'd say to check out. Um, otherwise, I would say the better releases are some of the Sega Saturn games, um, like Magic okay. Knight Rayarth, which uh, is a, an incredible um, another action RPG, like an incredible action RPG. Um, again, based off another anime um, of the same name, Magic Knight Rayarth, which is on Amazon Prime. If you want to go watch that one. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, Shining Wisdom, I think, is a really good like top-down action RPG, very similar to again something like Zelda, but you're going, you're doing more kind of dungeon crawls, like um, and, and less about kind of you know unlocking new equipment. So those are the okay. ones I would say to pay attention to. The Ark the Lad games on PlayStation One are also pretty solid, but I don't think they've held out held up as well because just mm-hmm. for the nature of PlayStation One games, you know that they just don't age super well. Yeah. Case in point, when we talked about Final Fantasy VII last week, so it's like oof. Yeah, some of the gla- some of the graphics for those games aren't great, but I think I think they were fun games in their days. So those are the ones I would cool. say to look out for, and of course, you know, Lunar. But you said not to say that one, so I didn't. 
because <laughs> I know. <laughs> definitely get into that. Cool. Well, thank you for that history lesson, man. I'm uh, definitely uh, insp- well, just like inspired and like thank you for just filling out that gap in history that I just had no idea about with uh, with working designs. Yeah, for sure. All right, now, now you just got to go load up on Sega CD games, Garrett. I, it, one day and I'm going to turn you into a pocket. Sega CD person, yeah. Garrett. It's going to be great. All right, let's party up because we've got a couple questions this week, Garrett, and we, want, we got yeah. received lots of time for them this week. We're going to start with Delroy at J Delroy C, and he asks, have you ever played, for some reason he put played in quotations, a single-player RPG with someone <laughs> else, passing the controller, sharing a save, or simply watching along? Mm-hmm. When I was younger, my not-a-gamer sister and I would play through RPGs like Suikoden 2 and Lunar together. Shout out to Delray for the Lunar reference, of course. Her reading the text aloud and me playing. It was an amazing bonding experience and one I shall recall fondly. RPGs were one of the few genres that allowed us with this type of engagement that can be incredibly rewarding for people who don't traditionally enjoy games or aren't actively playing. So um, I don't know if mm. you have an answer to this one, Garrett, but I'll go first with this one because I, I have a couple yeah. stories. So first off, uh, growing up, um, I, I, of course, have two brothers. I have an older brother, Kyle, and my younger brother, Corey, but we're, we're like not separated by too many years. Like my older brother, Kyle is like, we're like a year and a half apart essentially. So a lot of times what would end up happening is like my mom and dad, if they bought us video games when we were younger, they would actually buy games for both of us to kind of share. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times when we got, we were finally getting into RPGs, um, Lunar was actually the game that Kyle actually ended up getting for his birthday um, one year. And we actually like when Kyle started playing it, I was really kind of sitting along with him and kind of watching through the experience and we kind of experienced it together. And, um, we did that Mm -hmm. for a lot of games, um, not necessarily RPGs mainly because, um, again, like a lot of our childhood, we weren't really playing too many RPGs. Um, and it wasn't really until, and then, and after that, in kind of our teenage years, um, Kyle was more kind of into music and, you know, playing in a band and stuff like that. And I was still playing mm-hmm. lots of video games, but I was also playing a lot of PC games at the time. And then, and then by the time uh, I was more into console RPGs, you know, it was only a year or two before he kind of graduated and moved off. So um, mm. we didn't really play too much together, um, but but we did have a couple experiences like playing Lunar, just like Delroy and his sister did. Um, we, we had that experience. Cool. Otherwise, I mean, I've been in relationships with with girls that haven't really been traditional gamers um and and they've usually liked to watch along with with some of the games i'm playing and 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 to delroy's mm-hmm. point like it's it's a really cool bonding experience and just you know fun to you know talk about the game together and and kind of uh have just kind of the one person kind of experience the story together which i think is really interesting and um yeah i, I kind of missed that because i i used to do that all the time um whether mm-hmm. it was uh you know with uh in past relationships or um when i was living with uh, my roommate from a few years ago um, we, we did a lot of stuff like that too. So yeah, I, I think it's, it's pretty fun, uh, to Delroy's point to kind of share a game together and kind of experience it for the story. But Garrett, what do you think about this question? Did you, you know, do anything like this yourself or, or what do you think? So when I was growing up, I actually was the only child, uh, throughout like most of my childhood. So I did not have a brother or sister close in age where I could share a long media game, like an RPG um, day in, day out to, to like experience with. So I did not personally have a, like a huge memory of that. I did have friends come over and like have sleepovers quite a bit. Um, but it was mainly playing those party games and just, just playing that together. Cause RPGs, you know, they take a while, right? Yeah. They, they would, they would, it's not a single night. It's like, 
um, probably for kids, you know, with restrictions and everything, maybe a month long process, maybe more than that. Um, so I normally just played stuff like Star Fox and Mario Kart and like Halo. I'll, I'll like the couch co-op games. It would be better to play that together. I remember some of my friends bringing over new games, though, like Assassin's Creed one and like Bioshock, you know, the stuff like that. And I remember them playing it in my house. But they didn't want to share the controller at all. Yeah. Every time that they brought the game over, it's it's for them to play, not for me to play. And so it's it was actually kind of, um, kind of just a weird thing. And I, I would just just play Pokemon on my handheld or whatever while they just play their game on the screen. And then my parents would come over. It's like, why are you guys sleeping over if you're just gonna play separate games? Or <laughs> like, just go outside, go to the pool or something. So, yeah, I personally didn't have a childhood experience like that um, that I traded off an RPG. Like when I was in college, I had one roommate. He was a huge gamer as well. We would like share a bunch of like just gaming knowledge together. And then eventually we played a lot of Borderlands 2 uh, together. Um, So that's one thing that we shared with. And then we still play games to this day, just like different um, online multiplayer games. Mm Um, but yeah, other than that, I did, I didn't have personally a single player RPG that I traded off with someone. Mm-hmm. Actually one memory of that, not an RPG, but super smash brothers, okay. the event matches. Mm-hmm. Um, I would trade it off with my friend to d- defeat the event matches in one go. And, and we eventually got all 51 event matches in melee. So okay. that's my like only experience trading a, like a controller, um, in a sense, for, uh, to, to share a game experience yeah. together. And I think but, it's just yep. a generational thing, too, uh, that might play yeah. into that a little bit, because, again, when I was growing up, you know, things were very different. We didn't have a lot of co-op games, or if they were co-op yeah. games, it was like the Mario Star Wars co- co-op uh, from the original Mario games where essentially one person plays, and when they die, the next person picks up for wherever they, they like they yeah. were playing from and then going from there and you kind of go back and forth to see maybe who beats the game first in a way. Um, so we didn't mm-hmm. really have like a lot of co-op stuff. So it was more likely, you know, that if we had a story based game, like, and I was watching like someone else play it, like I would be probably start to get invested in it and stuff like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think that's where a lot of that comes from. You know, it's just me being old Garrett, you know, being, me being old <laughs> man, like I look at games a little bit differently like that. So whereas nowadays, yeah, if I grew up kind of in this era, you did like, it would make more sense to me play more like couch co-op games. Cause we saw so much of that during either the N64 mm-hmm. era or, um, the GameCube Xbox era. Um, because all those consoles came, came with four controller slots for a reason. So you can all play together. Yeah. Um, whereas it's not, it was not like that back then. So that's true. There you go. Next question comes to us from Discord, uh, from the Winter Gamer, and he asks, I just upgraded to an Xbox Series S. What RPG would you suggest one should try through Game Pass that would definitely use the benefit of the faster console? So to give you time to think, Mm. Garrett, I have a couple that I came up with. um, Because obviously... I think you answered this a little bit um, when when I he answered this on Discord, um, but I know you didn't give it like a specific example because he didn't because really, right. it was just like how many of RPGs are really going to take advantage of the speed boost. But there were two that I thought of. Um, one that actually okay. stands out very quickly is um, the Outer Worlds because the Outer Worlds oh, okay. is an RP is like a, a first person uh, RPG that has mm-hmm. so long load times on the original <laughs> console. Like if you go to a new area, sometimes it takes up to a minute to load on like mm-hmm. the original Xbox, like on uh, Xbox one. Um, whereas if you played on series S it's not instant, 
but it's pretty fast. Um, just the downside mm -hmm. to that that version in particular is that there was an upgrade patch that came for the Outer Worlds, but it only came to Series X, not Series S. Wow. So it didn't, I didn't know that. It doesn't benefit for a lot of those, but just from the raw horsepower of the SSD, it just loads faster just by default without them actually okay. tinkering with it. So that was one that I came up with, and the other one uh, was Dragon Quest XI, um, which I don't think okay. necessarily had super long load times on Xbox One, um, but I do think that the One S actually does a nice job of really taking advantage of um, the, the power within that console and actually um, providing you a better experience with the load times mm -hmm. in that game. But those are the two I came up with. Um, Garrett, what, what about you? What do you think about this question? Uh, so a few games that popped in my head. Um, I was thinking about this. I remember uh, playing. I, I played Skyrim 360, One, One X, Series X, like like throughout the whole generations of Xboxes, and the evolution of just that game in terms of just the remastered graphics, FPS boost, and then now with the SSD. Let me tell you, the low times in Skyrim, you, you can't read the <laughs> subtitles anymore. That's actually was part of the entertainment of Skyrim is is seeing the, the nice little loading times with the figurines Between and then the little the text at the bottom. Yeah, and spinning the figurine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I spin that figurine for at least two to three minutes on my 360. <laughs> it was it was pretty fun, actually. Uh, but now you you can't see it. It's just like half a second. It's like, boom, boom, you're there. Yeah. And it's fast and it's ready to go. And it's so nice to have that kind of experience with Skyrim. Yeah. It's just you're you're on the go and it's it's just super instant load times. So I would recommend wholeheartedly Skyrim. And also um, Yakuza like a dragon. Ooh, that's a good one. That that game. Oh, my goodness. I And I got that day one and I'm glad I did. It's such a great game. Um, but the load times on there is just non-existent mm -hmm. it's just like here's a loading screen like 0.1 second and then you're instantly in like it's there's just no waiting time at all so that's those are the two games i really recommend a non-rpg that i would actually go back to is probably dishonored one mm -hmm. dishonored one is notorious for their loading times on the 360 now with fps boost and with the loading times, a completely different experience. So, yeah, there are definitely a few games on Game Pass that the, the hardware series S and Series X take full advantage of, and it's awesome. Those are some good good picks. In fact, I would say even you could go back to, like, Fallout 3 or Fallout New Vegas if you're going to replay those yeah. two, because I remember those having pretty long load times, too, and I'm sure they're probably instant as well. I haven't played them again on the console, but I'm sure mm -hmm. that they would take advantage of that as well. So, yeah, yeah. we had some good picks. I mean, there's not a ton of RPGs on, um, you know, Series X and, or sorry, on Game Pass in particular. Um, mm -hmm. I, like I was tempted to say Octopath Traveler, but I was like, it doesn't really take advantage of, of the fast speed because it was already a fast loading. It game really doesn't. Um, yeah. And, and same with like something like Chris Tales or um, some of the indie RPGs and stuff, too, kind of are in the same boat. And then mm -hmm. last question this week comes to us from Gilgamesh, and this is a bit of a read, so stick me with, with me yeah. on this one, folks. I was introduced to The Witcher through the Leshen crossover event with Monster Hunter World, and it is without question one of my favorite fights in that game. The music just fits so well, and the fight was fantastic. General RPG question. Since I missed the Monster Hunter episode, I don't know if this should go in the Witcher slash crossover slash boss fights video, but... What unique boss fights from any RPG or non-RPG franchise would you like to see crossover into another 
RPG franchise. Bonus points if they have their own music that just fits. My personal pick would be The Secret of Mana Dark Lich Boss crossed over in Dark Souls 3. That would be mm. pretty awesome because the Dark Lich boss, of course, is just this, you know, evil entity. And it just probably would fit in with kind of Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like another good example of this as well. Um, and just going back to your kind of your monster hunting example, Gilgamesh, um, was uh, the Final Fantasy 14 crossover event with Monster Hunter. Because they actually ended up doing a trial, which is essentially like a mini raid boss fight that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Rathlos. Uh, and essentially, you actually uh, mm. fight Rathlos, and he has a bunch of different mechanics, and it has its own like unique uh, monster hunter music that goes along with it. Um, not only that, mm-hmm. but there's unique monster hunter mechanics in the fight, um, such as the ability to ha- bring like a mega potion with you. Um, that essentially, at a certain point during the fight, like the healers can't heal anyone anymore, and you're basically relying on using your mega potion to keep yourself from dying to Rathlos. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Plus, you can unlock a Rathlos map, Garrett, which who doesn't want to ride all around on a Rathlos in Final Fantasy XIV? I mean, come on, please. So that would be legit. Yeah. As far though, when I read this question, honestly, there weren't too many that came to mind. I mean, it, to kind of steal your example, Gilgamesh, like I would maybe take like the Grim Reaper boss from from Castlevania and put it into uh, into Dark Souls, mm. like any of the Dark any of the Souls games. I think it would kind of kind of fit. Um, but I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit tougher to ha- like to, to kind of bring over a boss fight from a previous game and kind of put it into um, a game universe that it doesn't really exist in and kind of have it like feel like it organically fits anyways. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble to think about an answer for this one. But what are you about you, Gary? Do you have a, an, a, an answer in mind for this one? Yeah, I mean, I just have like a couple of thoughts about it. First off, uh, like these crossover events, I mean, they are for franchises that they're really open to crossover events like Final Fantasy 14 and Monster Hunter is now just very um, notable to cross over to so many different franchises like with Horizon Zero Dawn and Witcher. And what I would like to see um, is just the other way around. I understand it doesn't fit with like Horizon Zero Dawn or Witcher. I get that. But like they could still make some amount of effort to bring in some monsters from Monster Hunter into those games. And like it would be really cool to see. Maybe not Horizon Zero Dawn, but definitely Witcher 3. (laughs) I would love to be Geralt and try to face uh, Rathalos or um, Diablo. Uh, that would be very cool to see, and and especially with that combat and that great, like like the atmosphere with it. And I would love to try to uh, take it down. I think it's a really cool thing to do to um, kind of just advertise your game to other fans mm-hmm. of like a similar genre. So it's it's a really cool thing. Another um, thought ab- about this, and I don't know why they didn't do this, but I, I guess they just don't have time or effort. The Octopath Traveler people, mm-hmm. like, uh, to- is it Tokyo RPG Factory or is it a different one? Different I'm sorry. One. Tokyo that's, RPG Factory was I Am Setsuna and Onanaki. Right. right, right. So, but the Octo Traveler, uh, Path Traveler people, why not bring in classic Final 2D Final Fantasy bosses in there as just like some simple boss rushes? Like, it doesn't even need to be fit into the story or whatever, but just like, hey, here's, here's an opening over here. Oh, here's like a crossover event with. Final Fantasy three uh, bosses over here or Final Fantasy uh, five over here. I think that would be really cool to just like refresh, regurgitate that that old Final Fantasy lore and just like make everyone knows, hey, these these 
intricate bosses do exist and let's just put them into like the new 2d games mm-hmm. and and see how they fare so i i think that would be a pretty cool idea to do but i'm sh- i understand they're probably hard to work that project triangle strategy yep and and they're almost ready to go with that one i can't wait sean's for that. favorite I know game of sean's all time. Ready. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the go for both of us. I can't wait. And actually, like while you were talking, I thought of it as like you know what bo- one boss I would love to see like either in a Final Fantasy game or another Square Enix game, maybe even Octopath mm-hmm. Traveler was uh, is Lavos like having like oh, Lavos yeah. be like a boss fight in like another game because Lavos goes across time and dimensions and stuff like that. So it would make like canonical sense for him to be like that would be perfect in another game and, yeah. and maybe do some crossovers with some Chrono franchise stuff because. Come on, yeah. Square! Like, why haven't you done anything with that yet? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that 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 was one that I, that came to mind where it's like, you know, that would be pretty cool. But yeah, your your Witcher mm-hmm. example is like, you could take like any like fantasy boss monster. You could even take like um, Bahamut from Final Fantasy, for example, like the big right, dragon, right. and then have like Geralt fight it. Like, I thought like, that would be really interesting, or even something like that with like crossing over the other way with like Final Fantasy and and monster hunter and taking some of the final fantasy monsters like a behemoth or something mm-hmm. like that and then finding them in you know monster hunter i think would be interesting too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but cool there you go i think that's gonna kind of do it for this i know it's a little bit of a shorter show this week friends but it's all good it's all good um before we go get plugs go uh you can follow me at twitter at bland explosion and you can follow me at twitch if i ever stream twitch.tv slash bland explosion uh you can listen to me over to the nintendo shack i'm a co-host over there over at the play some video games network you can support them at patreon.com slash psvg we are having a refresh as you can tell in the next few weeks we're we're shaping around and me and rebecca are taking the reins of of nintendo shack uh but donnie will be back around uh and we'll have a new co-host Ooh. to come in so just uh Keep, keep, keep your ear out. It could be you know, anyone. It could even be Garrett Bland. It could, it could be two Garrett Blands, his <laughs> evil twin. Let's go. Garrett's tw- evil twin, Larrett Bland. <laughs> With the fancy mustache and everything. Oh, oh gosh. Even I, better. I just hate the, so many ideas, I hate the guy already. <laughs> uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Ryan Turford. You also find us on Twitter at the RPG Gave, as well as on YouTube, youtube.com slash Capri, as well as podcast services around the globe. So for Garrett Bland, I'm Ryan Tufford. This has been episode 13 of the RPG Cave, and we're out. Bye-bye.